Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. First, I'd like to salute two great Hong Kongers who passed away in recent days. The first is historian Chan Sai Jiang, or S.J. Chan, as he was known, who came on the programme a number of times. He spoke about his book, East River Column, Hong Kong Guerrillas in the Second World War, and how he was a child during the Japanese military occupation of Hong Kong. Later in the programme, I include an excerpt from an interview with SJ where he talked about his life as a child during the war. He told me that he felt permanently hungry and that the malnutrition manifested itself as constantly itchy skin. We'll be hearing later how his father takes the family to Guilin, where a young SJ gets his schooling in a temple. Yunnan itself is a very fertile place. It's, the agricultural products are plentiful. In fact, for the first time we had really good food and well-fed. We started schooling. We resumed schooling. That's where I learned my uh, Mandarin, my Putonghua. The late S.J. Chan, who we'll hear more from later in the programme. Michael Wright, the former director of the Public Works Department and the chief architect of Hong Kong's early public housing, has died at the age of 105 in London. I'll be featuring him on Hong Kong Heritage next week. He was born in 1912 and he and his brother would share a sedan chair to the Peak School. He later served as a volunteer soldier during the defence of Hong Kong and was a prisoner of war here. You know, I, the main thing in the prison camp, I kept myself busy all the time. A lot of people in the very early days just gave up the ghost and died. I started off by concentrating on, I spoke Cantonese very badly because my tones are very bad, but I spent the first um, few months of the prison camp uh, trying to write, uh, you know, learning uh, Chinese characters. The late Michael Wright, who I was talking with in September last year at his home in London. Later in the programme, I'll be talking to Nina Wan, Assistant Curator at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum, about a beautiful exhibition of export silver. And conservationist Katie Law, who, with others, has launched a petition to try and prevent a hospital being built on Bishop Hill. But first, Second World War bombs certainly snarled up the traffic in Wan Chai this week. I'd like to say hats off to the bomb disposal crew. It's dangerous work. Maritime historian Stephen Davis told me that just in clearing Penny's Bay on Lantau to make way for the construction of Disneyland, more than 400 pieces of unexploded ordnance were found. One of Hong Kong's battle experts, Philip Cracknell, who conducts tours and has found many war items, says he reckons the bombs were dropped by an American Avenger Grumman, which could carry two 1,000-pound bombs or a single 2,000-pound bomb. The bombs were probably aimed at shipping moored close to the Wan Chai waterfront. Earlier in the week, I spoke to Hong Kong historian Tony Bannum about the bombs and what his thoughts were when he heard the news. Honestly speaking, Emery, it's no surprise that area was bombed very heavily in around 1944 and the beginning of 45. And, of course, it was shelled by the Japanese in December 1941, also quite heavily. So over the years, I have lost count of how many large explosive devices from World War II have been found in that region. And I can guarantee you there are more to be found still. So that's a bit of a nightmare for the MTR, then. It's a nightmare for anybody digging around that area. If you recall, the most recent one before this was the 240mm Japanese shell found in the park next door when they were digging the link to the central bypass. So anybody doing deep excavations, because, you know, the tunnels and the bigger buildings require very deep excavations, are going to find things like that. Why were both the Japanese, with their initial shelling and also later the Americans, targeting Wan Chai? 
Well, the Japanese were primarily targeting the pillboxes and the, the strongholds around that area. Uh, as you know, there were pillboxes lining the north shore of Hong Kong Island to deter or interfere with any Japanese invasion. So there were obvious targets for, for their shelling and their bombing as well at that time. And then the Americans were primarily later in the war trying to hit Japanese shipping and shipping installations also along that north coast. So um, some of those were supposed to go into the harbour as opposed to on land? Well, in fact, the, the one found on Saturday would have fallen in the harbour in those days. It's only post-war reclamation that means it's now on land. And it's interesting to see it described as being found in silt because, of course, that means that it fell through the ocean into the silt and then during reclamation was simply covered up. Nobody had dug down that deep until the recent foundations were dug. How volatile are these bombs? Well, that's a good question. It's best to assume they're very volatile. You never know. Uh, in this particular case, I was told the fuse was damaged, and that's why they had to deal with it on site instead of taking it away. Um, but these are dangerous things, and bomb disposal officers worldwide are killed to this day by World War II munitions, including American bombs dropped during that period. There was one at a uh, German railway station about three years ago where a couple of EOD specialists were killed. So you have to take them extremely seriously. They're very large and potentially very unstable. So with the American bombers, what sort of bombers were they and how, much, uh, how many bombs were they dropping? Well, most likely in that area would have been B-24 Liberators. Now, I must admit I've forgotten how many 1,000-pound bombs they could hold. So each one of those bombs weighs 1,000 pounds, and the rule of thumb is half of that weight is explosive and half of that weight is steel casing. So a 1,000-pound bomb holds 500 pounds of uh, amatol in this particular case and 500 pounds of steel. And, of course, when it explodes, all that steel becomes jagged projectiles blasting out of, the, of the, the area where the bomb explodes and causing enormous damage to anything or any body they impact with. So it would cover quite a wide area? It would. Now, um, I believe, if I remember my physics, that the blast decreases with the square of the radius of the distance. Uh, if you're anywhere near that bomb, you would not, nothing would be found. Uh, as you move away from the bomb, you eventually become safer. But it's interesting, that bomb, I saw one photograph, you could see Elizabeth House in the distance where my wife and I lived in the 1990s. And even at that distance, I think they would have lost all their windows. These are very big devices. But uh, when the bomb is dropped and it doesn't go off, I mean, to do it, is there a lot of those? I mean, were, were, were most of them actually detonating uh, during the Japanese occupation, say later with the, the American bombing, or was there quite a sort of failure rate with the detonators? The, the failure rate is higher than most people would guess, uh, and it does vary with uh, the type of munition. But I've seen failure rates quoted as high as 30% for, for some types of bomb. So in other words, 7 in 10 would explode and 3 in 10 would be left uh, in, in the ground. Uh, for the ANM-65, which was the particular bomb in, in this case, uh, I'm not sure what the failure rate was, but judging by the number that have been found recently, um, there was another one found in Happy Valley only maybe three years ago. I, I think the failure rate could have been as high as 20 or 30 percent. So with the weekend bomb and the bomb today, we can expect many more. I'm afraid so. And people have to recognize that. And first of all, take care when doing excavation. Secondly, if anything is found, take it very, very seriously. And thirdly, put up with the disruption. Uh, luckily, in Hong Kong, our EOD guys are extremely knowledgeable and uh, extremely safe in the way they operate. But EOD? They have a very important job. EOD is the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Group of the Hong Kong Police. 
Um, but they know what they're doing, but they take time because that's how you do it safely. So everybody just has to put up with the inconvenience because it's in our own best interests. Hong Kong historian Tony Bannum there. Now over to the Hong Kong Maritime Museum on Pier 8, where you must go and see a beautiful exhibition of export silver. Our first currency here was Mexican silver, which I've always found very exotic, from Spanish galleons. Assistant curator Nina Wan and museum director Richard Wesley showed me some of the exhibits. Welcome to this exhibition about the Chinese export silver at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. It's on till the end of February and it's a, a wonderful tour de force of all things silver from the 17th and 18th century when Spanish galleons were bringing silver to the China coast in exchange for wonderful ceramics and silks through the Opium Wars to the 19th and 20th century where Hong Kong and other port cities developed an amazing reputation for high quality production of silver works from goblets to plates to all sorts of silverware associated with eating. Uh, You name it, it was produced in Hong Kong and the collectors of Hong Kong have assembled an amazing amount of material over the years and they've been very generously made it available for the public at the Maritime Museum and other supporting institutions like the History Museum, HSBC, we've all worked together and this project has been led by uh, Dr Chan and Nina Wan who's here and can perhaps tell us a little bit more in detail. She spent a year working on the subject and helped produce a wonderful catalogue. I've just had a very brief look through this, Richard, and uh, you kick off, you know, really by silver going back several hundred years. Now, if we go back to the Spanish galleons, Nina, thanks very much for showing me around today. Yeah, sure. Actually, our exhibition is divided um, into different sections, and the first part, uh, we begins with uh, silver as a form of payment and its role within the uh, global maritime trade. Since the 16th century, the discovery of the uh, silver mine in the Americas, and then that actually facilitated production and circulation of silver coins in the world. So in this showcase here, you can see we have exhibits of Spanish and Mexican coins on top. And due to the circulation of the silver coins in China and in the Qing Dynasty, China also cast their own uh, silver coins during the late Qing period. And before, they frequently used silver ingots and bullions instead of for trading. Because I'm quite, I'm quite excited, Nina, to be here because so many times when I've talked about Hong Kong currency and people have said, oh, yeah, did it, it started off with Mexican coins. And I said, yeah, but I've never quite understood why. So is that because that, that was as a result of the discovery of, of silver in Mexico and then in, in South America? Yeah. So mm-hmm. how, come, how come it was coming to Hong Kong then? How come Hong Kong uses it in the early years? Yeah, in, in, in the early years, because um, uh, in, in Hong Kong's early years, um, Hong Kong, they do not have their own silver coins, but um, this, the coins circulated uh, in the market mainly from like the Spanish and uh, Mexican coins, and th- uh, also uh, those from um, the uh, Chinese silver coins. So you can see the uh, circulation of the Mexican and Spanish coins. They were used in Hong Kong's early day in the society for uh, trading. So in front of us, I mean, we've got coins dating back mm-hmm. 200, 300 years, and some from provinces in, in China. Did Hong Kong actually make any of its own? Yes, Hong Kong actually has a history in making uh, the silver coins. Uh, it can be traced back to the um, 1866. There was a Hong Kong mint in the Causeway Bay areas, and they, at the time they started to cross different values of coins, like uh, 10 cents or uh, 20 cents, and uh, those coins uh, have been circulated in the market for um, trading. 
So they would have, they, but they were able to create their own mint in Hong Kong, so they could make their own coins. Yes. Hong Kong has always been a trading port, and in the 18th century, coins were being exchanged. Silver coins were being exchanged for for goods that uh, ceramics, silk, and so forth. And what what basically happened was, in the 18th century, nearly half of the world's production of silver was actually going into China. That was how big the trade was, and it wasn't sustainable. It's balance of trade issues. And this is where the opium came in. That what happened was that the silver was changed for opium as a source of payment, and that was the sort of origin of of opium being pushed onto the Chinese economy, and the, the story that's obviously followed from that. So there's a direct link between silver coinage and opium, and then at the end of the, in the opium wars, obviously it reverted much more uh, back to silver, but. Uh, silver coins, but coins were always been central to global trade, and this is you know we're trying to tell the story of kind of adaptation, and the story about the mint was that it really locally produced coins were just not very popular. They preferred British coins or obviously Ch- uh, Chinese coins. This export silver, I mean, how long was this trade? For the history of the uh, Hong Kong export silver, it begins with the late Qing and then it continues development during the first half of the 20th century. And actually it shows a continuous development during the mid-20th century, but it is not as uh, flourishing as the first half period. Can you just describe some of the pieces that you've got here? We have quite a lot of highlight items, and especially our own collection, we have silver goblet, which is uh, related to the uh, regatta competitions, and is very beautifully decorated with the patterns of the competitions of regatta. And you can see quite a lot of junk and uh, ships and boats um, decorated on the surface of the silver cup, and also decorated with some traditional uh, Chinese patterns like uh, bamboo. We have one silver goblet. But known from the Hong Kong Museum of History, and um, which is actually uh, the silver cup uh, is related to uh, the Dr. Sun Yat-sen, and he, together with seven classmates, to uh, donate the money and to commission a silversmith to produce this uh, silver goblet for um, their teacher, Dr. Manson. And Dr. Manson is a very famous doctor and making great contributions to the medicine field uh, in Hong Kong, Taiwan. And、uh, other places, Doctor、so, Manson. Doctor Manson. So, what kind of contributions do you know? What was it sort of research or?、Uh, you can say he's a doctor. So, yeah, I'm sure he conducts quite a lot of research and、um, makes some、uh, new contributions to the field. What I was going to ask you as well. I mean, you've got you've got items from that, that are part of the collection here at the Hong Kong Maritime、mm. Museum. But who else has been involved?、Um, have you got other collectors that have been、oh, yeah. contributing? Yeah,、um, we we have our own collections. But besides that. Um, our exhibits are known from the Guangdong Museum,、uh, the HSBC Archives, the、um, Hong Kong Museum of Art,、um, the Hong Kong Museum of History, and quite a lot of、um, local famous,、um, prominent collectors in Hong Kong. So, as well as the research, have you had to do lots of polishing? Yes, we have. A, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, we have a, a conservator, Paul, and he, yeah, he, he do quite a lot of. <laughs> Polishing so that、uh, you can see the silver in very uh, beautiful uh, status and very shining. <laughs> What would you say?、Uh, give me Nina. I mean, without looking at value, without looking at possible historical importance, give me a couple of your own personal favourites since you've been looking at this for the past year. Yeah, I, I especially I like、uh, T-Sap is produced、uh, by Wang Heng. 
and um, it has uh, um, eight pieces of tearware and also plus uh, one um, awful uh, plate. And it shows a very beautiful uh, workmanship and is decorated uh, with quite a lot of um, delicate and detailed traditional patterns like the landscape, flower and bird. And also you can see its design is also uh, very beautiful, like uh, they uh, use the dragon as the... Spout. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah so. no, it's, it's beautiful. And you've got also, mm-hmm. it's a, a traditional, I mean, it's, it's a silver tea set from uh, Wahing, Wahing, made, yeah. made by Wahing, yeah. seven pieces, including the tray. Yeah. And it was made in the first half of the 20th century. And that is also part of the uh, Mu Wentang yeah. collection. And it, it's magnificent. And mm-hmm. you've also got, I mean, one of the teapots is, in fact, um, you know, you've got the bamboo holder like you would yes. have with a traditional Chinese yeah. teapot. It's uh, also incredible that you see, like, uh, you've got ships, you've got uh, also uh, dragons that are used on candelabras, you've got trays, cutlery, it's extraordinary workmanship. Did they create a mould and so they would have done all the design before and then they heat up the silver? How did it, or did they heat up the silver and then kind of carve it on? According to the Master Yi, the local silversmith, he tell us the common procedures for making silver pieces. Before they produce uh, uh, works, then they normally they will have a draft, uh, they will have um, a sketch to depict um, the, the objects like, and then uh, to measure the uh, size of the objects, and then they just follow the images of the draft, and then to uh, produce the objects. As you say, you were exporting them out, um, so they would go off to Europe. And it also included um, was Hong Kong exporting to Tiffany's? Oh yes, actually there um, is a close connection between Wang Heng, one of the very famous and large-scale silver shops in Hong Kong during the early 20th century. And there is a, a close connection between Wang Heng and Tiffany and Code at that time because uh, Wang Heng served as a supplier of silver pieces for Tiffany and Co. Assistant curator Nina Wan and museum director Richard Wesley on the exhibition The Silver Age, Origins and Trade of Chinese Export Silver, which is on show until February the 25th. Bishop's House was the second colonial building to be constructed after the military headquarters Flagstaff House, now the Tea Museum in Hong Kong Park. The church would like to build a 25-storey hospital on Bishop Hill behind Bishop's House, but conservationists are alarmed that this would spoil the integrity of Bishop Hill and also will make too much traffic congestion. They've launched a petition, which you can find on the website Support Hong Kong. Earlier, I spoke to Katie Law. Bishop Hill is located right next to Government Hill and it has a very, very long history and it reflected the significance of the the Anglican Church in the history of Hong Kong. The whole area dated back to the 1840s. Within Bishop Hill, there is the Bishop's House, um, which was constructed in the 1850s. And it was actually the second most historic Western building in Hong Kong, after Flagstaff House. Also, the building itself is of a very great um, architectural interest because it was designed in the Tudor style, a modified Tudor style, which is very rare in Hong Kong. And it was originally the bishop's residence. And also the, the site also started as the St. Paul School. So the whole area, which includes Bishop's House, um, there is also a St. Paul's Church um, slightly up the hill on Granny Lee. There is also the church guest house on King Road. 
And together with the central hospital, it forms, and there is also a theological college within the whole compound. Um, so it was actually right next to Government Hill. And its development, um, you know, it, it is, you know, have a very similar development of the Government Hill, which on, it's a political center of Hong Kong, and then there is the religious center of Hong Kong. Yeah, our application covers both this area. And what's at risk here? The Shinkong Wei uh, last year, it proposed a 25-story private hospital within the Bishop Hill site to replace the original seven-story central hospital. So this is a massive development, and it has about 300 hospital beds, and as well as a 90 car parking space. The whole hospital compound will be 25 story with three underground levels. So with this massive development, we are very worried that the historic ambience and the environment of Bishop Hill and Government Hill as well will be destroyed. It will also affect the, the traffic of the area. It's already heavily congested area in Hong Kong. But the church does own the land. It's a, a lease leased land, um, but it has a very long lease. The problem is this area, which is currently zoned as Government Institute community, has no height restriction. So this is, I think, a, a very exception that um, the government has not imposed a height restriction on this heritage area. So that's why um, the Government Hill Concern Group now making a planning application to zone both the Government Hill and Bishop Hill as a heritage precinct to protect the area um, with height restriction. So we are proposing this to the Town Planning Board and our application now is now open for public comments and support. I appreciate the need to protect heritage, but we are in need of more hospital beds. Yes, we need hospital beds, but the hospital location should follow the needs of the population. So if there is a growing need of population in the new territories, then we should build hospital in the new territories. And we all know that in central, there are not much population. It's mostly the central business district. And um, not far from here, we already have the private hospital, Kenosa Hospital, about 10 minutes from here. So I, I think the most important thing is to find the right location to build hospital to satisfy the needs of the population rather than building it in an appropriate area. But there's no suggestion that um, any of these older buildings like Bishop House would be knocked down? Well, they will not be locked down according to the Shinkong Wei, but it is very important to understand that the historic ambience and the cultural landscape of a historic area will be seriously affected. Currently, the area is all low-rise, surrounded by greenery, but a 25-storey huge block of hospital will overshadow the area to create a very negative visual impact and environmental impact. Katie Law there, co-convener of the Central and Western Concern Group. For more details on their platform and the petition, please go to the website Support Hong Kong. And now to hear from the late Hong Kong history buff, S.J. Chan. In this excerpt from an earlier Hong Kong Heritage interview, he talks about being a child during the Japanese military occupation in Hong Kong from 1941 to 1945. His father takes his family 
to live in Guilin. The entire family left in a boat which sailed through Macau and to Zhangjiang, which is called Fort Bayan or Guangzhou Wan. In those days, it was a French colony. And then from there, we were to walk all the way into Guilin. Don't forget in Guilin, those, a lot of Hong Kong people who actually escaped from Japanese went to China. And Guilin was the place because in Guangxi, a lot of Guangxi people actually speak Cantonese. So suddenly, from this situation where you'd had sores on your body and, and from malnutrition, particularly a lack of fresh fruit, were you suddenly in a position where you were able to eat again properly? We didn't have to go to Guilin uh, to, to, to find sufficient food. We went to um, Guangzhou or Zhangjiang and then we stayed there for one month. Food was plentiful. That place was facing the sea. Um, we and a little boy. Oh, I, I remember distinctly uh, the way we ate. It was tremendous. Um, I could down ten bowls of rice for lunch. In fact, with uh, roast meat and that sort of thing. In fact. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm sure after your experience here. Yeah. Just continuing on with your own war experience. So, 1942, you you end up in Guilin. So, what were you doing for the remainder of the time? I remember. The difficulties we had to walk all the way from Guangzhou one to Guilin. I remember where we met some very kind-hearted people. When we arrived in Kunming, before my father started work for for the British Army A Group, the BAG. In fact, um, one thing, a major part of Yunnan was never touched by the war, and there were lots of lots of the American soldiers, Air Force, um, the Flying Tigers were there for the adults. The number one demand is cigarettes, and then there's no shortage of Lucky Strike cigarettes sold everywhere. And for the first time in so, so many years, uninterrupted supply of good butter, cheese, everything we can think of. Yunnan itself is a very fertile place. The agricultural products are plentiful. In fact, for the first time, we had really good food and well-fed. We started schooling. We resumed schooling. That's where I learned my uh, Mandarin, my Putonghua, because as a, prime, as a schoolboy, when you learn the language, you pick up very fast. I learned Putonghua, I learned the local dialect, uh, even today I could still speak the Guangxi dialect and the Yunnan dialect fluently, and Putonghua has no difficulty whatsoever, you know, because we, we were taught that way in, uh, in school. And uh, so you were able just to continue on with your schooling. Um, was it a sort of strange circumstance for you, or did you just settle into it as a boy? It was both. First, it was strange, because we were the minorities. Uh, we were Cantonese, and initially um, we were bullied, literally. I mean, just, there were bullies in schools. But later on, we settled in quite well, in fact. Again, we resumed school, but it's only a few months. Again, it was interrupted. And then we went to Yunnan. I went to uh, Kunming in Yunnan. Again, we started school. I remember distinctly, the school was very near the airport runway. So much so that every 10 minutes or so, the plane's landing, the B-29 landing, were interrupt our schooling. And the school itself, the premises, actually were in a run-down temple a temple for God of Fortune, I still remember. The temple is still there, in fact. Oh, right. okay. What was it like coming back into Hong Kong? Ah, <laughs> interesting. It was very different from Kunming. In Kunming, with money, you can buy everything, with food. But Hong Kong was under ration. Rice, kerosene, flour, bread. Remember, bread. 
and there was black market everything, everywhere. Rice was under ration, you know. You couldn't get enough rice, so and so that um, we subsisted on bread and butter. So even up to this very day, I couldn't stand bread and butter. We had too much of it on a daily basis. So you come back to you came back to Hong Kong in December 1945. Were many of the buildings bombed at that point? One could see Central from Happy Valley all the way, all the building in Hennessy Road, Johnson Road, bombed flat. Apparently, the U.S. Air Force was trying to bomb the Naval Dockyard, and then it was before the time of a precision bombing, and they missed it by about a minute, and then raised the entire Wan Chai all the way up to Admiralty. The late Hong Kong historian S. J. Chan. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>